the name of God, Creator, Redeemer, and Giver of life. Amen. Well, you'll notice that I'm not Charles Baldergrave. Uh, Charles played today, so uh, he's asked me to uh, preach uh, in this place, which I'm pleased to do. So we have this great story, a very familiar story, of the wedding at Cana of Galilee, right at the beginning of chapter 2 of John's Gospel. Of course, in John 1, as we know, those wonderful words from uh, we read at Christmas time, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and came to dwell among us. And following on from that, in chapter 1, we have uh, John talking about baptism, that he baptizes with water. Uh, there is coming one after him who will baptize with Holy Spirit. And John doesn't record uh, John baptizing Jesus, as happens in other Gospels, but Jesus, the one who appears here and named as the one who baptizes with Spirit. We also hear. Uh, Jesus recruited the first uh, of his four disciples. Uh, there were Andrew and uh, Simon, Peter, and uh, Nathaniel and Philip. And so now, kicking right off in chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, going to this wedding in Cana in Galilee. And he goes with uh, Mary, his mother, and those four disciples. It's interesting to note that uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, only appears twice in St. John's Gospel, uh, once here at the wedding feast, and next time not till she's standing at the foot of the cross as he dies. So we can see her, if you like, as bookends of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, his life, here on earth. And the story is a well-known one. There was this family, uh, it's a well-to-do family in Cana whose uh, son was being married. Uh, there was a wedding feast, many guests had been um, invited, and absolute disaster halfway through, they find that they run out of wine, which would be an absolute disgrace for the family uh, to be running out of wine at the wedding. And once the story got around in the village, you can imagine a little bit of a laughing stop uh, to the villagers uh, as they watched and heard and told the story of what had happened at that big wedding here the other day. And so Mary hears about this and says to Jesus, well, they've run out of wine. And he replies, uh, rather abruptly, you might think, Woman, what's that got to do with me? Uh, my hour's not yet come. Uh, commentators say that, um, in actual fact, uh, in translation, it might have become somewhat harsher than Jesus might have meant. Perhaps uh, madam might be a better and more appropriate word than woman. And is this really... Uh, something that I need to do something about. Um, my hour's not yet come. Uh, looking to the time, 
uh, by his own uh, death on the cross and the act of redemption, but maybe also seeing it just foreshadowed a little bit here uh, at the very beginning of his ministry. So he tells the uh, servants to fill those six huge stone jars, jars for purification with water, and then to draw some out and take it to the steward who is absolutely overwhelmed when he finds this is really high quality wine. So he said, no, most people serve this kind of wine first, and then when everybody is a little bit drunk, not worrying too much, that's when you come out with the plomp if you actually need it. But you have kept the best wine until last. And John records in the Gospel that this was the first of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and his disciples believed in him. Now there's always a lot of debate about uh, water and wine. And clergy often, uh, the bathroom, often jokes with clergy, you know, because you could do something about this, we haven't got any wine. Now, could you produce some for us, please? Uh, and you can say, well, what did happen? Did it happen? Could it happen? Some people say, well, God is God. There's nothing that God can't do. So if God wants to turn water into wine, well, that's what happened. And others say, well, look, I'm not too sure. You know, I'm not sure I really believe in a God who intervenes to suspend the laws of nature. If I have to believe that, then I don't actually think I can be a Christian because that's an impossible thing to get my mind around. Well, you can take different views on that, but the really important thing is that the water and the wine is only a, a story and uh, we don't need to get too literal or too concerned about what actually happened. Um, and we need to look much deeper into the symbolism, of which there's a huge amount of symbolism, which is very important. And we also need to think in talking about the story of John. And John was thought to have written this in about 100 years down the track from this event in Canaan. And do you know what happens to stories over a period of time? I mean, it's an oral tradition. And as people tell the story, you know, little bits of elaboration go on around it. And, um, maybe it was more like this and like that. Um, we know how family stories grow. Uh, but the essential thing is what the real meaning of the story was. And if there's been a little bit of oral tradition, along the way. Well, that's interesting for scholars to look at, but we don't need to get too hung, hung up ourselves about water being turned into wine. What does it symbolise? That's the really important question. Now some people would say, well, it's a miracle. But John doesn't use the word miracle in his Gospel. He uses the words sign. It's something that points to something else, something deeper, something more significant. And that's what we need to focus on rather than the literalities of the story. The British theologian, Tom Wright, um, 
says that these are cryptic clues. And there are seven cryptic clues in John's Gospel, or seven signs, as they're called, things that point. And so that's a very important thing to concentrate on the meaning of the Gospel and what does it have to say to us today. Now there's some very rich meanings uh, in the Gospel, uh, in this particular Gospel, and <clears throat> the first one is to note that it is a wedding feast. Now in the Scriptures, both in the Hebrew Scriptures as well as in the New Testament, God, Jesus, are often described as bridegrooms. And so here's a clue, it's a wedding feast, so that image of the bridegroom becomes very important. And for those in Israel who have the capacity to see, they would recognize that imagery of a wedding feast. And for those who are thinking deeply about it, to see the importance that here God is the bridegroom and symbolically of symbolic of a great, the great heavenly banquet which is foreshadowed for all God's people. So that first thing, that the image of the wedding feast and the bride and the heavenly banquet would be a key image in this story from John. And then secondly, to think about those stone jars of uh, for purification. Very large jars, you know, 20 or 30 gallons apiece, uh, the scripture said. Now that's 150 gallons plus, probably more than enough to satisfy the guests uh, at that wedding at the end of the day. <coughs> the purification was important. Both jars were used annually in that rite of purification in Israel. And what we're seeing now, symbolized here in the coming of Jesus, that the whole nature of Israel is to be reimagined, rebased, refounded, go deeper, it'll be transformed. So no longer dependent on annual rituals of purification, but now finding in the coming of Jesus the Messiah a, a much deeper and permanent basis of faith in God and in Jesus, the one, the Christos, the one, the chosen, the anointed one. And then you can think of transformation also in terms of the impact and the significance of it for us today, for each one of us, that our own lives can be transformed in this way. So that insofar as we are able to perceive what is happening around us, to see the Christ in our midst and allow our own lives to be transformed, there would be that thread of meaning also coming through in the story of the wedding. And it's also important, here's another point, to recognise that Jesus was there incognito. Now, that is um, before he was known. You know, people, he's only just starting off, he was, didn't have the public awareness. And there's no, oh, here's Jesus coming, you know? None of that at this early stage. He was there 
right at the very beginning. And so I think for us to have eyes of discernment, eyes that can see, uh, be alert uh, to the presence of Christ, often incognito in our midst, that that is a very important thing for us. And then there's the thing about the wine, a distinct a Eucharistic uh, references here. The blood, the Jesus' blood that was poured out, and the wine that symbolizes that, the new wine of the gospel of life in Christ, to see that Eucharistic and new life dimension to the story also. And finally, the last of these threads of meaning. Notice that this happened, it says at the beginning, on the third day. Now, the third day would mean a great deal to many of those who were following Jesus. They'd think back to his resurrection on the third day. And so again, there's this other reference here. John writing it, as I say, 180, 70 years down the track. By that time, there's a well-established tradition about the third day, um, which is there. So all those very rich meanings uh, oh, I guess one other, and to talk about the superabundance of Jesus' love. You know, 150 plus gallons of wine, that's uh, a lot. And so that is a symbol, if you like, of Jesus' love. It, it's rich, it's overflowing, it has no limit, it extends to us, to people of every generation, and indeed to the whole of creation. That's how abundant Jesus' love is. So we can look at the Gospel then, this uh, very significant Gospel today, and we can think about how it is a sign, it's not called, as I said, a miracle, because a miracle might suggest that you know, Jesus might, they might see him more as a magician, and people, Jesus didn't want people to believe in him because he was able to do a quick trick and turn water into wine, and that's a final wonder we've got. He wanted people to see him as the Messiah, the Chosen One, the one who could change life and all creation. So that, that key message there coming through from, from in, in the Gospel today, calling us to follow Jesus. And then the assurance that I've just mentioned of the superabundance of God's love, and to remember that as a key learning. And what I said about incognito, Jesus incognito. Now do we look at what's going on as we listen to other people, as we watch the news unfolding on television, as we see things that are going on around us in society? Can we discern the presence of Jesus in some of those things, whether as someone who is present, as someone who sustains those in suffering, or whether you know, in the actions for justice and peace and compassion and truth, which we can see. We need to have our eyes open to discern and to see uh, what that means for us so that our lives are changed as a result. And so this is what today's Gospel is about. 
It is the first of seven signs that John writes into his gospel. It is something that talks to us about the abundance of God's love. It is something that calls us to discernment and discipleship as we seek to live in our own lives the life of Christ and the Son.